Hello and welcome back to Building Better Basketball. I'm Neil Gray, Community Coach Development and Volunteer Manager with Basketball Australia. Today's guest is, I'm sure, no stranger to your podcast feed. With his own podcast on Sports Illustrated, countless appearances on the Zach Lowe podcast and numerous other NBA media. Howard Beck is an American journalist covering the NBA for the Los Angeles Daily News, the New York Times and most recently Bleacher Report. Since December 2020, he has been an NBA senior writer for Sports Illustrated, where he also co-hosts the crossover podcast with Chris Mannix. At the Los Angeles Daily News, Beck covered the Los Angeles Lakers during the Shaq, Kobe and Phil Jackson era. With the New York Times, Beck covered the New York Knicks for most of his tenure with a brief assignment to the Brooklyn Nets during their first season in Brooklyn. In the fall of 2013, Howard left the New York Times for the Bleacher Report to be their national NBA writer. In this episode, Howard tells us about what we don't see about the NBA coaches on League Pass and what he has seen change in the NBA as more and more international influences are introduced. He also answers our trademark question with an answer I'm surprised has taken so long to come up. Let's get stuck in. Howard, welcome to Building Better Basketball. It's uh, awesome to have you on and um, good evening for you and, and good morning here in Australia. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Excited we get to do this. And um, yeah, uh, glad glad to be able to dive in. Glad we were finally able to schedule this after my uh foot dragging and making uh, making it difficult. So here we are finally. Howard, I've, um, as I said to you uh, before we started recording, I've already recorded the introduction, which all our listeners would have heard waxing lyrically about you. But in your own words, can you just tell us a little bit about, I guess, your journey with basketball um, and, and your experience of, of the global game? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's kind of an unusual one because I'm I'm starting my 26th season covering the NBA, but there's nothing in my earlier part of my life that would have suggested this is where I would end up. Uh, didn't play a lot of basketball as a kid. You know, played pickup. You know, as as a kid into my teens, into my college years, even some intramural stuff, that kind of thing. But I was never. It wasn't. It wasn't a primary sport for me. And when I decided to become a sports writer in college, I was not setting out to cover basketball or cover the NBA even because my biggest part of my fandom at that time, right? We all bring our fandom to this first. I am not a fan now and have not been a fan of anything for a very long time. You kind of excise that part of you when you become a professional sports writer. But my my biggest fandom was of uh, the San Francisco 49ers, NFL team. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area in the 80s when they were in their heyday. They were a dynasty. That was the team that captured my imagination the most as a kid. And as somebody who grew up in the Bay Area, also, you know, as by, by way of explanation, of course, the Warriors were crap back then. So I wasn't exactly growing up at a time. This is what happens, right? When you're a kid, if you if you're fortunate to grow up somewhere in the U.S. where there are multiple teams and multiple sports, it's probably the team that's the most successful that uh, you know, uh, you know, brings in the most um, the most kids and 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 and, and kind of captures your imagination, captures your fandom. And so, in the Bay Area at that time, you know, two baseball teams, the Giants and the A's, two uh, football teams for most of it, the Raiders and the Niners before the Raiders left. The Warriors were kind of a distant afterthought. Sharks didn't exist yet. There was no hockey in the Bay Area when I was a kid. And um, so the. I went to Warriors games. Like I can remember going to some Warriors games. They were very cheap to go to compared to the other teams. Uh, but they weren't on TV much, as I recall. 
and they weren't very good ever. Um, and so it just wasn't part of, of my world. And I became obsessive about following the Niners and obsessive reading about the Niners in my hometown paper, the San Jose Mercury News. And that's what kind of leads me down a path where by the time I go to college, I decide, you know what? I'm, I'm decent at writing. At least I think I am based on my schoolwork. Uh, love watching football. There are people who get paid to go watch and, and write about these games. That sounds like a pretty nice way to make a living. That's literally, and it's, it's, it's as dumb as simplistic, as reductive as possible. That was what was going on in my tiny teenage brain that led me down this path. The rest of it just kind of unfolds. You don't choose all of the um, various avenues of your career in, in, in journalism. You, you kind of go where, where you know, the path takes you in a lot of ways. And so for me, I started in sports. I got sick of sports for a while, moved into news. I was covering like local government for five years. And then out of the blue, one day, an old boss calls and says, hey, the Laker beat. He, this is a, a guy named Michael Anastasi. He's the sports editor of the LA Daily News. I'd worked for him in a previous paper. He says, hey, we just lost our Lakers beat writer. Do you have any interest in, in coming back to sports and coming to cover the Lakers? And this is in 1997, and Shaq and Kobe have just finished their first season there. Um, believe it or not, I actually had to think about this. <laughs> but I ended up making the right decision. And, you know, that's the cliche. The rest is history. Like, that, that's how it happens for me. I did not intend to – I did not set out on this path. Um, it's just kind of where I ended up. And here we are, you know, 25 years later, uh, still covering the NBA. Um that's and i'm sure many of our listeners will have listened to you previously on the on all your your podcasts and and read your written work across the the various platforms that we are able to access here in australia because most of our listeners will be big nba fans and and many obviously develop new fandoms for teams as as we have more and more players go over there so you will have to the generational fans that that followed people like um, Luke Longley with the Chicago Bulls went way back in the in the day, and um, then transitioned through to Delavadova with the the Cavaliers during their um, championship run, and and now we have um, a new generation of Australian superstars, I suppose, coming through into the NBA, and Josh Giddy um, primarily, as well as the the players that recently were were drafted. Um, well, the, with the, the um, American perception of Australian basketball, in some conversations we had earlier, you were saying that it's very much, they don't appear on the, the national consciousness, I suppose, and, until they get drafted. But once those players are, are in the league, I suppose, what's the, what in your um, experience with uh, the international players coming in to, to the American population of the or the the main population following the NBA become more aware of um, what's kind of happening globally or is it very much they just follow that kind of player from when they're drafted through their career with, with that team I often think of like uh, NBA fans as being in you know various different categories right and I think broadly, you know, the biggest NBA fan base, the broadest uh, subset are casual fans. They're going to tune into the national games on TNT and on ESPN and ABC. They, some of them aren't really tuning in until after the NFL 
is is late in its season and baseball has finished up the world series in late october and then you get through the nfl so like there's this there's this kind of unofficial start of the nba season in this country as being christmas that's that's like some people think of that as the actual opening night because that's when a lot of sports fans having finished with baseball it's late in the nfl season it's starting to go toward or it's in there you're in the playoffs and so a lot of teams are out that's when people really start to tune in and go oh wow oh, gee i i the Chicago Bulls are good this year. I didn't realize they were going to be good. And that's when people start to tune in. That's the majority of the audience. Now there's also this other part of the audience, the like Uber geek, like super basketball nerdy, follow all the draft prospects from the time they were 13 years old. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you know, like Victor Wembanyama, right? French kid who's going to be the next like unicorn type basketball player. If I went to every NBA fan on say opening night at Barclay center here in Brooklyn and it could interview all 18,000 something people. Um, I bet the vast majority would not who, know who Victor Wimbanyama was or where he was from or anything about him, but he's the almost certainly the number one pick in the 2023 draft point being, I don't think that most NBA fans in this country have a, a a a real knowledge or appreciation or exposure to international basketball until those guys get on the radar as draft prospects and so like there's like the draft geeks who really love following this stuff right and they'll all know who Wembenyama is and they'll know who Scoot Henderson is and they probably knew who Josh Giddy was as he was coming up um but even for me I, I, I cover the NBA and and my, my all my focus is on the NBA I don't even watch that much college ball to be honest I have plenty of NBA games to watch that 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 take up bazillion hours during the season i have stories to write and phone calls to make and podcasts to record i just don't have time so no i have no idea who's coming up next in australian basketball but also we're french basketball spanish basketball italian basketball brazilian basketball i wherever um eventually they will land on my radar when some scout or some gm says oh you know you got to keep an eye out for or some or one of the drafts you know, there's plenty of great draft experts uh, that I follow, you know, their work. Somebody all of a sudden puts it on Twitter, like, here's 30 seconds of, in this case, it's a lot of Victor Wembanyama, but maybe it was going to be Josh Giddy, you know, a year or two ago. So, you know, that's, that's how it happens. And so I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, you know, I, I don't know how to speak for the rest of, of, of like NBA fans in the U.S., um, but in terms of like the the feel for Australian basketball, where that's going, the strength of the program, um, where that leads, it's it's really hard to say. Uh, but I think we I, are, yeah. yeah, we're really, um, we're really. Uh, I think we we focus very much on the on the individuals, but there's some obviously some opportunities that the Australian teams are getting to play the NBA teams in their warm-up games. So I think it it will continue to be a tri trickle effect. And as the, the game continues to grow and, and these um, players continue to have more success, um, I think we'll we'll start to see more players hopefully appear on that college landscape as well and, and see more um, uh, transition through to, to the NBA as well in that kind of top tier of draftees. So um, obviously very close to you. There's probably, I'm sure there's millions of Australians in Brooklyn, but there's, there's, there's one Australian who um, is very, uh, very much of the national focus on the basketball media here, not only in America, but also in, in Australia and Ben Simmons. So we're hopeful that he'll have a, um, a much better season this year, both um, 
on the court and as part of the Brooklyn Nets. So, and Patty Mills is here too in, in Brooklyn. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean Ben Simmons. It was interesting. I was at the Nets media day and um, Simmons, as is typically the case, did not have a lot to say. He was so uh, elaborate and so forthcoming on J.J. Reddick's podcast just a few days before. And once he was back up on the podium with the, the media, uh, you know, with with reporters asking questions, he was back to being that very stoic and kind of closed off. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. Uh, we haven't seen him play in a year and a half. Um, we've never seen him play with the Nets, but Obviously, he has all the talent in the world. The Nets have an incredible amount of talent and as well as more question marks than any good team in the NBA. So uh, we'll see. But I, I am so intrigued to see what Ben Simmons looks like next to Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Um, as the league becomes more diverse in its playing group, so we have the Australians, we have Giannis, we have Luka Doncic, um, the Gasol brothers from from uh, kind of previous um, decade, has that influx of um, players that don't have the, I guess, foundational grounding in the, in the US system changed the style of basketball in the league as, as someone that watches a lot of it? Or is, have they just kind of brought their own uniqueness to, to work within the kind of existing systems? Yeah, I, it's an interesting question, Neil. I mean, I, I tend to think that the, the player is just the player, right? Like Giannis is not representative of, of anything that is unique to, to Greek basketball. Um, you know, Jokic is not unique. Uh, Doncic is not, they're like, or they're, they're not bringing the uniqueness of their national programs necessarily. I don't think there's anything. Now we have had this ongoing discussion, debate, whatever clash of values in, in basketball for years and years where people have talked about, well, in, in, in the U.S., the AAU system, uh, you know, is, is, is breeding um, or is, is developing kids in a way that much that, that very much emphasizes the individual. Right. And that it is not doing enough to teach team concepts. And it's not about so much passing and playing within a five man game, but is more about showing off this individual so that they can get uh, on the radar of national scouts, and then they can go, you know, dominate at this level and this level and go get, you know, either a college scholarship or get a professional offer, whatever. And it's always been about dovetail to the individual. And that's been this kind of simplified debate, right? There are people who know this stuff better than I do. So I'm not going to pretend to play expert on this. I'm not an expert on youth basketball programs in the US or on AAU, but that's been the debate. And is the international game more team oriented? That's again, these are the, the two poles, almost stereotypes of American basketball versus international ball. And to the extent that Giannis is like an incredible all-around player who does dominate the game, but does not always have to dominate the ball. And, you know, okay, that may speak to that. And, and Jokic, as selfless a superstar as there is, right? And if we, we think of him as a passer first and a playmaker first, even though the guy is, is a, a fantastic and dominant scorer himself too. Um, but Luca is kind of more in the James Harden mold. <laughs> like Luca dominates the holy hell out of the ball. And he racks up a ton of assists and a lot of triple doubles, but so did Russell Westbrook. So is there really a, 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 a substantive difference that we can then track to the way their youth programs developed them in their various countries? Like, 
I'm just not sure. I don't know if, if we can really paint with that broad of, of, of a brush. So I, I, you know, look, the international, the international players make up about 20, 25% of the NBA uh, these days. And it has definitely given the league a diversity of literally diversity of nationalities and backgrounds, and maybe even a diversity of playing types and, and styles and whatever. But I tend to think that each individual player is representative of themselves, right? There is one Joel Embiid. There is not a whole trail behind him of, of you know, coming uh, that came up in the same system and therefore going to play like Joel Embiid, right? Nor with Luka, nor with Jokic, um, nor with Ben Simmons. They just happen to be incredibly great athletes who develop their games at a really high level in the various places that they came from, right? And even if we want to go back again to the stereotype, okay, who was Ben Simmons most often compared to as he was getting close to arriving in the NBA? It was LeBron. And so, you know, if, if we're going to knock the, the American youth basketball system for promoting the wrong values or promoting too much individualism, LeBron came up as a guy who was this amazing combination of both Magic and Michael. And he's, the, he's actually the beacon. <laughs> like LeBron is the guy that Ben Simmons and Luca and everybody else are trying to emulate in a lot of ways. Um, and Giannis too. So I don't know if that answers the question. That was a very was, rambling response. <laughs> thank you. As with all good, um, as with all good journalism, Howard, I think what it will do is it will promote thought and discussion. And I think what you've said will send people away to to think about the the players that they see as as different and the, the players that they see as probably traditionally out of the system and and consider what um, shaped their journey in getting there. Um, the Whilst we talk about the um, playing group being diverse, the, the coaching group has stayed um, pretty um, traditionally American and in the main, um, at least in the in the head coach roles of the NBA. And you've had the opportunity to to see some of these um, of pinnacle coaches in the world up close. Um, with your experiences with the with the coaches, what are some of the things that that you've seen and and you can go back as as far as you want that you've seen them do that have given you pause and impressed you and in, in their kind of behaviors and and attitudes uh it's an interesting question i you know i've in, in 20 25 years it's it's really weird every time i say that out loud it just sounds so damn long and i feel so old um I've seen and spoken with and kind of just observed like a really, really wide variety of personalities and styles. And I think one thing that's that's evident is that, you know, there's no one right, no one right way to succeed as an NBA head coach. Right. Um, you know, Phil Jackson, who I covered for seven years in or excuse me, I covered the Lakers for seven years, covered Phil Jackson for five of those in L.A., very unique personality, kind of a larger than life figure, kind of quirky, kind of eccentric, different way about him. You know, all the stuff about, you know, having his, his teams meditate and handing out books and all the things that made him him. And that's that worked for him. Greg Popovich is of a completely different mold. Steve Kerr, who coached, uh, who played for both of them and considers both of them important mentors. I don't think Steve Kerr is like either of them. But he but I recognize pieces of both of them both basketball wise and in terms of his uh, the way he approaches things. Um, and so I think in general, I, I think what just, I'm just struck by over the years is just that there's so many different ways 
to do this. Frank Vogel, I think, is kind of the epitome of like the, this modern day NBA coach where they're not the equivalent of their stars in terms of their stature, um, their voice, their their platform, right? Like Phil Jackson was like larger than life. Greg Popovich, larger than life. Pat Riley, larger than life. Chuck Daly. A lot of today's coaches are more like the Brad Stevens, the Frank Vogels, this kind of technician coach who's more of a partner with the players as opposed to like the, uh, you know, all, all consuming, you know, um, authoritarian figure. Right. And so that's changed over time. But there's still some guys who, you know, like Doc Rivers is, is kind of more from that old school. Right. Like Doc, when Doc speaks, everybody pays attention, sits up, pays attention. Frank Vogel is kind of understated. Um, you've got you know, a guy like, you know, uh, uh, Taylor Jenkins in Memphis, who, again, just came up as a really smart X's and O's guy. And like, ha if I go back to that, that pool of, of average NBA fans, after I've asked them all about if they know who Victor Wembanyama is, I'm going to ask them all about who Taylor Jenkins is. None of them are going to know. I said, like, there's going to be this tiny percentage of NBA fans who know who Taylor Jenkins is. Um, and so it's a different time in the NBA with that where the coach is not this overwhelming authority figure or this larger than life figure or a celebrity like his players are. Um, they're more collaborator and standard setter, you know, and then they're coming more with their basketball philosophies than they are about the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the boss of this thing. So that's just, been, you know, an interesting evolution to observe over time. Um, and then the other thing that always strikes me, if you're asking me about oh, coaches you've covered and everything, like the guys I've enjoyed the most are just the ones who are really great communicators, who are just great to have a conversation with, where it might be about basketball, but it might quickly veer into philosophy or just interpersonal dynamics and um, how to manage people and, and all those kinds of things. And that's, you know, again, I immediately gravitate back toward guys like Pop or Steve Kerr, Phil Jackson, um, Doc, uh, just guys who are just like really interesting, thoughtful people who, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in speaking to on, on, on a variety of topics and, and not just, you know, you know, what you're running out of the next time out. Um, that's, I think, again, Howard, I think the fact that you've just kind of touched on the important factors of a coach's personality there, I think that is reflected whether you're in the NBA or whether you're coaching um, junior domestic basketball. I think it's definitely a transition away from being the prescriptive, coach to being a, a kind of player-centered, um, more collaborative coach. And I think that's a really important message for coaches at all levels to hear that if that's happening at the, the creme de la creme, the pinnacle of, of where a, a coach would want to get to, then, then they should be doing it at their level as well whenever possible. Um, one of my favorite episodes that you've ever done of, of podcasting was a uh, a little series you did with um, Rachel Nichols and Zach Lowe about uh, I can't remember what you exactly titled we, it, but if you were we there. called it we called it drunk with power, uh, yeah. and and we were literally drinking. I don't think we were actually drunk. We were just kind of having a little fun with the title, but drunk with power was the idea. Yes, and this was just going around the room, trading um, ideas, where we each came in with our lists of like, let's just go around the room. What would you change if you could change anything about the NBA? And uh, a, a lot of, and it could be anything from the most minor things to the, to the, to the biggest and none of them had to be realistic, which uh, was the mo most fun part of it. So I, I tweaked it slightly given the um, international nature, I suppose, of our conversation and um, 
because it's been, um, I don't know, maybe like 12 months or something since the last episode, you might have had a bolt of lightning inspiration from, from watching games as well. Is there, if there was one thing you could change about the fundamentals of basketball, so not necessarily NBA to improve the game, what, what would it be? Oof, man. Um, I should have thought longer and harder about this before uh, we hit record uh, on this. I, I, there's, I'm not sure there's any one thing really, right? Like it's like, first of all, as far as the NBA goes, which is, is my daily existence, the game's in a really good place right now. And it hasn't always been in the course of my uh, long time covering this league. Like there's been some times where it felt like the game was kind of stagnant, um, especially in the early 2000s, all the isolation play. And it's not that there's not isolation play now, but like they're, they're you know, teams have ways of, of combating that. And it's not two guys on one side of the court with the illegal defense rules and eight guys standing on the other side because they can't leave their guy. And so now it's just two guys playing one-on-one. Um, you know, that, that's something that I would have absolutely flagged some, some time ago, but I think the game is mostly in a really great place. I do think the one thing that still bothers me, I, I guess it's just because I, I still have this ideal in my head that this is a five person game and it should be played with all five involved. That's not to say that should be, you know, perfectly egalitarian or that you don't feature your superstar or that you, you know, overcompensate just to, you know, make, you know, your fifth guy feel happy by touching the ball. But I do think there's something to be said for everybody being involved in at some point touching the ball. So if there's one thing that is, I think, troubling still about where things are today is that after all the corrections the NBA made to try to get rid of what I was just talking about in the early 2000s, all this stupid isolation play where it's two guys on one side of the court, Iverson just dribbling the ball between his legs with one defender in front of him and eight guys on the other side of, uh, you know, of the, of the, the lane. But now we've gotten to this point where, you know, Luca or Harden when he was still more in his prime and Russ, certainly Westbrook when he was in his prime Giannis at times where they are dominating the ball to a point that Michael Jordan never did where they, their usage rate. And we didn't have usage rate in Michael's time, but like Michael never posted a 35 usage rate in the regular season. These guys do it routinely now. And Michael, we have most of us agree was the greatest of all time. I'm not sure that's great for the game overall. And I, and I, I'm not sure it's actually great for team dynamics. Like, I think it is not to say that you'd ratchet it way back, but I would. And and again, this is not something you change by rule. This is not something you change by coaching or anything else. It's just a decision that you make uh, as, as, as an individual, as a player. And to a certain extent, it's, it's a head coach, but like, Hey, look, we want a system and a, and an approach as a team in which we're keeping the defense more off balance. And yeah, we're keeping everybody involved so that if the ball suddenly comes to them late in the fourth quarter, it's not the first time they've touched it in an hour and a half. Um, I do think there's something to that. And I know I'm not alone in this. And it's one of the things I love about what the Warriors have done during the Steph Curry era. Steve Kerr didn't just say, hey, Steph, we're just going to give you the ball a thousand times a game and just keep running pick and roll and and play a two-man game. No, it's they have this nice blend of of various different offenses and a lot of movement involved and the ball moves and Steph doesn't dominate it. And um, aesthetically, I prefer that as somebody who watches the game a lot. Awesome. Howard, our, our last question, we ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast and this can be in basketball. It can be in any sport um, that you wish. Who's one coach that you would like to ask a question to 
and they can be alive or dead as well. I should point that out. And what would that question be? Wow. Um, you know, the, the first coach I think that made an impression on me from a distance as a fan, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, you know, my, my formative youth here. I mentioned the 49ers earlier, Bill Walsh was the head coach during those days. And I think to the extent that the first team you ever root for, or the first sport, the first athletes, the first, whatever, they leave an impression, not just based on their athletic abilities or the games that they won, the championships they won. There's kind of an imprint there left over that I could actually trace back. Like Bill Walsh would have been some combination, I think of like pieces of Phil Jackson or Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich um, in that, Bill Walsh was not this old school kind of Neanderthal version of, of football, right? And in this country, you know, NFL football is all about this physicality and football coaches tend to be kind of, you know, grunty, um, growly, demanding, just this old school uh, approach. Mike Ditka was the epitome of that in the 80s here. And Bill Walsh was this more cerebral version. And I always appreciate the fact that he has this very thoughtful approach to the game and looked looked at things in a different way and innovated in a different way. And so I think that that's carried through just in my own kind of value system, for lack of a better term, over time. Um, Bill Walsh has been gone for some time, un unfortunately. I think he passed maybe 10 years ago. Uh, but I, I grew up on him as a fan, not as a journalist. So I would have never had the opportunity to, to ask him anything. But I think if I asked him, you know, could go back and ask him anything, it would be about, um, you know, he, he had what was eventually dubbed the West Coast offense that he developed for Joe Montana. I would have asked him about, you know, the risks and the uh, the the doubts that are involved in making this this. Uh, very dramatic shift in the way the game is played and deciding this is the way we're going and then goes and wins, you know, multiple Super Bowls, multiple championships doing it. But also he had a, a way about him in terms of his communication style that um, again, like I, I think to me, what always strikes me about the great coaches is not so much the tactical side of the game, but you have to sell your players on what you're trying to do because the best X's and O's guy in the world, is not going to win if players don't understand it or don't, believe in it and so i think somewhere in the mix of coaching philosophy innovation those things uh, bill walsh has kind of my, my my first real icon of coaching that i looked up to as a fan i, I think i think uh it, somewhere in all of that is a is a question that's a that's a bad response and as somebody who really demands of of myself and of everybody else in this business that we ask really good questions and specific questions i have just failed miserably in developing this one on the fly so i'm gonna uh, as soon as we sign off I'm, I'm gonna go smack myself around for that i think we're into i think this is episode in the 20s at least howard and no one said bill walsh before so the there we go you i've gone way off the grid <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I do encourage anyone that is um, that has never heard of Bill Walsh to, to just throw him into Google and he has some fantastic coaching books that are still in print as well that would be really beneficial for people to read. Um, Howard, I, I hope that in 25 years time, you're still saying I've been in the league for... And then you have to catch yourself and realize that it's another 25 years because um, 
personally, I really enjoy all the all the content that that you um, put out, and it it's great that we're able to have something that helps us um, stay connected to the the league and the teams and the personalities within it, even when we can't um, attend games every week um, down here in Australia. So. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Good luck for the crazy period that's um, right around the corner for you. And um, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for all the kind words. And uh, thank you for the great questions.